Hello everyone, welcome to the 10th episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast with me, your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. We have a really special episode lined up today in celebration of hitting double digits. Let's start with something you may not know about me. Although I obviously sound like an extra from Outlander, I was born in South Africa. And having lots of family and friends there and in the university system, I've known for a long time that there is stellar research going on in Southern Africa and by Southern African scientists all around the world. But too often in ecology and evolutionary biology, there's a tendency to focus our spotlight on researchers in the global north. So I wanted to reverse that trend with a really special episode, bringing together some of the incredible women working in STEM fields in and from the Southern African region. My main guest today is Dr. Zoe Ntleko, who's currently at Mississippi State University. So stay tuned to hear all about her work on rhino ecology. I was also joined by the authors of a book that came out at the end of last year that highlights African women in STEM, Holding the Knife's Edge. It was great to talk to Dr. Evodia Sitati and Dr. Tato Motlalami about that. Lastly, Zoe and I are joined by Hiro Naik and Kolisa Sinyanya in a special roundtable segment co-hosted by Anne Chiza from the Root of the Science podcast. First though, my conversation with Zoe. my first guest today, Dr. Zoe Ntleko, a postdoctoral researcher at Mississippi State University in the US. Zoe recently completed her PhD on rhino ecology at the University of Florida, and during her PhD she was a junior scientist with South African National Parks, which was basically my dream job when I was little, and in fact probably still is, so it's a real treat to finally meet a real women in ecology hero of mine, Welcome, Zoe, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Kirsty, and thank you for having me. So you started your postdoc just a couple of months ago. So how has it been going so far? It's literally been a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's going well. The PIs are really nice. Um, and obviously, I've moved from like large African mammals to birds. I'm now working on wild turkeys, so I'm modeling the populations of wild turkeys, so... I'm new to birds, I'm new to um, wild turkey, and also just working in Northern American species and how different that is to what I'm used to. I mean, the fact that I now have the title of doctor feels really serious when I don't feel like quite like a doctor yet. So that's, <laughs> that's quite interesting, but I suppose that's my own issues. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you didn't anticipate uh, snow in Mississippi, maybe. Oh, yeah. So that was part of, um, I asked at my interview um, last year, I was like, um, so do you guys get snow? Because, I mean, not that I wasn't going to take a job at a place that gets snow, but I was just like, just so unprepared. And Mark, my PI, was like, oh, never. In the 10 years that I've been here, there's never been snow. So last week I was like, hi, I would like you to take back the words that you said to me when you interviewed <laughs> What is this now? So we're going to chat a bit about paths into science and what drove those interests later in the show. So let's jump to your formal start in ecology. You did your undergrad and master's degree at a place I know well, actually, Rhodes University in the Eastern Cape. What were your main projects as part of those degrees? Undergrad, we didn't really do projects that much. I think we had like 
short, like a couple of months project. And I, if I remember correctly, in third year, I worked on fiscal shrites only because that's the only project that was left when I went to choose a project. So <laughs> um, FYI, if there's a list of projects that are already set, go early because I know nothing about fiscal shrites even today. <laughs> So I had, I did my undergrad, finished, and then I, I actually started working at a museum in Durban, the Durban Natural Science Museum. But I've always known that I want to be in wildlife. So after about two years, I started getting MCs. I got in touch with Dan Parker back at Rhodes, who had taught me during undergrad. So I was like, hey, I'm thinking of um, doing a master's. He was like, yeah. Um, I'm interested, but come up with a project. And so I reached out to the regional ecologist for Fufuwe, Dave Druce, and he sent a list because I was like, oh, hey, I'm interested in doing a master's, but I'd like to do research on something that you guys want answers to because I, oh, I like that kind of, not that there's anything wrong with any kind of science, but I like the science that very applicable and there's a direct need for it. So I was like, what are, what are the questions are you guys wanting answered? And he sent me a list with like 13 different projects. One of them was on black rhinos, but it was, I think it was looking at depredation of black rhino calves by hyenas mm-hmm. because they weren't seeing a lot of um, black rhino calves in the population. And they, the assumption was that maybe they are born and getting eaten by um, hyenas. I was just like, I mean, I want to work on black rhinos because it's an endangered species. And so, which means we actually do need um, any research to be done on that. But I don't want to be looking at hyena scat. Because <laughs> that sounds yes. exactly like what I would be doing. So, Is there a baby rhino in this poo? <laughs> right? I was just like, that doesn't seem like something I would want to do. So I sort of started reading, just reading about that. And I was like, wait, but do we know that babies are being born so then that's how my project came up. And I ended up looking at the reproductive success of the population to see are babies being born at the intervals that are normal for black rhinos or is that the problem? And actually my results found that that was a problem. So usually um, black rhinos would um, have a calf every two and a half years and that had extended. And also the age of sexual maturity used to be six years for female black rhinos. And but now it was 12 years. Oh, right. The project ended up being a little bit more interesting than actually just going through um, hyena poop. (laughs) (laughs) And I also did um, a little bit of um, habitat selection in black rhinos, but habitat selection is is very tricky, especially if you don't have collars on things. I didn't have collars for for my project, so it was a very crude habitat selection. But like the big uh, finding from the study was the reproductive stuff. Mm. So... Tell me how you ended up in Florida. So you were working on white rhinos during your PhD in Florida. Um, I think I gra- yeah I graduated. I finished it in 2013. So I graduated April 2014, but I was already working. I found a job for a water treatment company, Umgeni. So I was working in the environmental um, management department because I do have an honors in environmental management and I couldn't find a job in wildlife. So in the meantime, I did that. But then I got in touch with um, Steph, Stephanie Freitag, who was the general manager at Sandparks, because they had a, um, a junior scientist program. Someone had told me about it. They're like, oh, have you thought about reaching out? So I reached out to her. She was like, oh, unfortunately, we're out of funds right now for the project. The project is not taking any new people, but um, let's stay in touch. Send me your CV. If I see anything, I'll send it to you and whatnot. I'm very good at keeping in touch. If you tell me to keep in touch, 
you need to tell me to stop keeping in touch because I won't <laughs> keep in touch until you're like, okay, girl. <laughs> so I kept in touch the whole year. She was very nice. Um, but then in January, she was like, hey, there's this program called um, OTS, which is the Organization for Tropical, Tropical Studies. It's like a three-month ecological fieldwork course where you go around all over South Africa getting trained in like fieldwork methods and that kind of things. So then I started with that. Um, so I resigned at my job and everyone was like, oh, where are you going? I was like, nowhere. <laughs> because I actually didn't have a job. So I was just like, oh. So it started in January and only in April where we're going to be in Kruger. So then I'd made um, an appointment to meet with Steph. And she was asking how the course is going. She was like, okay, great. And then she was like, so when can you start working? I was like, wait, I wait. She was like, oh yeah. Like, when do you want to start? I was like, oh, what, what, what am I starting? She was like, oh no. Um, obviously after speaking to you, I realized that we definitely need want you here on the junior scientist program. And you were also like persistent enough to show that you wanted it. So I've managed to find some funds so you can start as a junior scientist pro in the junior scientist program. So I started with Sandparks June 2015. And the first year was just, okay, so the whole program, the way it's set up is that it's to get you to your next degree. So it's to train um, biologists, scientists, uh, e ecologists. So the first year I spent just sort of following everyone on their projects to kind of see what I wanted to do. But I already knew I wanted to work on large mammals still, but having worked on black rhinos and being chased by black rhinos enough, I thought that was probably enough. You know, <laughs> the next time they chase me, I might not be so lucky. I figured, well, the same sort of, um, same sort of problems that are faced by white rhinos are faced by black rhinos. So if I can, and at least white rhinos are easy to find. So that will make like doing the research a bit more easier. So then I met um, Bob McCary, who was my PhD advisor, through a friend because I already sort of had an idea with um, the project that I wanted to do with white runners. So he was like, okay, cool. Sounds great. Then I'll be very interested. So that's how, like, it was literally like the, I could have done a PhD in South Africa anyway. I would have anyway. Um, the Florida connection came through a friend and mm -hmm. I followed through and it was just, yeah, it was, was that easy? So yeah, the affiliation is with UF because I was a staff of Sandparks. So what were the main questions and results of your PhD? The main questions was basically looking at um, the effects of poaching on wide rhino ecology. So I ended up with four chapters looking, one was looking at the effects of poaching on wide rhino demography. How was the population growing before poaching and how has poaching affected that growth. And the main findings with that is that um, poaching has an indirect um, effect on dependent calves. So if a mom, a female rhino gets um, poached and she still has a calf that's younger than two and a half years, <clears throat> that calf is likely going to die because often rhinos, if they're not found in time, they cannot survive by themselves in the wild. The second one was looking at the effects of poaching on white rhino behavior. Like your question came out from just thinking, do rhinos know they are being poached? Are they doing anything behaviorally to avoid being poached? It's well known in elephants that they will avoid an area where they used to be hunted. So we didn't know with rhinos because sometimes in the field, you actually find rhinos 
a few meters away from a carcass of another rhino. I set up a playback experiment where I had cameras and the speakers. Speakers were playing sound. Controls were just normal bird calls, while the treatment was human voices, just people speaking. It seems like females with calves and females and some adults seem to be avoiding middens with human treatments. The males keep coming back, but they're more vigilant when they are at the sites with the human voices. And this is because males defend and hold on to very small territories for a long period of time. So just because there's now suddenly humans scaring you, other males are going to take over your territory. Whereas females have these larger home ranges. So it doesn't matter for them if they can't go to that one spot. So that that's an interesting finding. And yeah, the third one was looking at if there is an effect of poaching on white rhino physiology. So we're looking at um, steroids there. I collected white rhino poop. So I ended up at some point collecting <laughs> white rhinos. They eat grass. They cool. Hyena? Mm. <laughs> so I collected rhino poop at three parks, one with poaching and two with no poaching. And in the poaching park, I collected from a high poaching area in the low poaching area because I wanted to see if, can we tease out the differences? We couldn't really find any links to, to link like poaching to physiological stress. And this might be because the park where poaching was happening is bigger than the other ones. So animals are probably able to get away mm-hmm. from the areas where there's high poaching. Um, what was the last one on? Oh, the last one on was looking at the effects of poaching on spatial distribution. What are the important um, environmental features that drive where we find rhinos and are those causing rhinos to stay in, in areas even though they are getting poached there? That's interesting. So your first chapter has recently been accepted for publication, right? Yes, it is. Congratulations. Thank you. So that's coming out soon in animal conservation. What do you do to celebrate a paper coming out? <laughs> that's a good question. And the answer is nothing so far. <laughs> I think, um, I, okay, so this is my second paper where I'm the first author. And just the whole um, publishing process was just so long and so miserable that by the time it was done, I was just so over it that (laughs) I just didn't even care to celebrate. I can definitely relate to that. It's kind of an anti-climax when it finally, even sometimes when it finally gets accepted, it's like it's accepted if you do these tiny things. So then there's still more work to do. (laughs) Thank you. And that's where we are. I get very anxious about like reviewer comments. Because it's, it's, I'm, I'm still at that early enough stage where I still take it as a, an attack on me as a person, you know, so I haven't, I don't have a, a, a routine that I do now yet because I'm just like, well, do we celebrate now then or do we celebrate when it's out? So I haven't celebrated yet. So I guess now we'll have to move it to celebrate when it's out and I'll have to find something. So it's great to hear about all your um your chapters they all sound fantastic i can't wait to see them all as they come out so thanks so much zoe for chatting with me and uh, we'll see you in the group discussion thank you so much see you soon welcome back 
to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast and to a special edition of the Paper in Focus segment that this episode focuses not on a paper but on a book. I'm joined by the authors of Holding the Knife's Edge, Journeys of Black Female Scientists, Dr. Evodia Setati and Dr. Tato Motlalame from the South African Grape and Wine Research Institute at the University of Stellenbosch. A warm welcome to you both and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us to the platform. Thank you for having us. So before we talk about the book, I'd love to hear a little more about you both and the research that you do at the Grape and Wine Research Institute. I can go first. So I'm a microbiologist by training and um, currently I'm employed as a chief researcher with the, with the institute here. And my focus is on understanding the microbial ecology of the vineyard and the wine fermentation process. So my interest is really in understanding the microbial diversity in the soil and on the grapes and how then translates into the diversity that especially drives uh, spontaneous fermentation and therefore affects the quality and aroma and flavor of wine. So my background is a little bit more convoluted. Um, I have a medical science background. Um, I have a master's degree in medical bioscience, but I joined the South African Grape and Wine Research Institute as a PhD student. Uh, when, when I completed my PhD research, I joined Evolia's group, research group as a postdoctoral fellow with a specific focus on um, microbial biocontrol um, agents derived from the vineyard. So I have to ask potentially quite a silly question. Does doing research on wine alter your enjoyment of wine or does it increase it? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on, on people. Uh, certainly for me, it hasn't really changed uh, my attitude towards wine. But I think Tato will, will attest to this because I always say if, if people show up in the cellar um, and see the kind of insect diversity that comes out of grape bunches when we process the grapes, they might want to drink the wine. <laughs> well, I'll be thinking about that and thinking of you both when I have my glass of wine this evening. <laughs> Uh, so Holding the Knife's Edge, which came out this September 2020, follows the journeys of 14 pioneering black women from their childhoods to being successful leaders in science and academia. So tell me how this book came to be and what motivated you to write it. I'll take this one. It started off really when I joined the institution. Evodia was a senior researcher at the time in the institute, and she was somebody I looked up to as a black female succeeding in, in scientific research. So we had conversations over coffees, many coffees. And at some point she um, she registered for coaching um, degree, management coaching degree. And I was one of her clients during her training period. And then we, we really started unpacking this issue of the lack of visibility of women like her who are succeeding in academia and who were scientists and how they navigated the different spaces and how they overcame the challenges they faced um, inevitably along the way. So when we had these back and forth conversations, she's like, then why don't we put together a list of women who 
you might want to have a chat a chat to about how how their careers developed and then instead of just chatting to them interview them put their stories together in a book format and that could serve many more young researchers in different spheres of science so really it was conversations that developed from a need from my perspective that we then said but this might not be just a unique thing to you let's let's answer it for other young researchers out there what is the meaning behind the wonderful title holding the knife's edge well um <laughs> I'm trying to simplify this because I can't I can't do it without throwing in our mother tongue. I am Betty and Tato is Tswana. And in both our languages, we have a saying, a proverb that says, in our mother tongue, it says, but when translated to English, it means a mother or a woman holds a knife from the sharp end of it. So from the sharp edge. And that means that women can take on a lot of challenges, a lot of strain uh, to ensure the success of their tribe, of their family. And what we were trying to say with this title and this book is that these women have held the knife uh, on the sharp end because they've gone through so much to build their careers in apartheid South Africa um, and have succeeded and they're still standing tall. And we wanted that to come through with the title of the book. So this segment is going to be part of a special Southern African episode. What do you wish the world knew about science and research in Southern Africa and particularly the women doing it? I think there's a lot of people who are not aware of the quality of science that is performed in Southern Africa, the diversity and resources that, that we have access to. We've both had the uh, luck of traveling uh, during our PhDs. I was in fact at Lund University. Um, so, you know, you get exposed to what uh, a lab in a European institution looks like and what a lab in South Africa, for instance, looked like. I think it's important for people to understand that we have good state-of-the-art lab facilities in, in Southern Africa. We can do science to the level that is done anywhere in the world. Of course, there are limited resources in terms of funding for, for research. So it's a competitive space. And so when you're seeing somebody who is succeeding, they are the best at what they are doing. And I think they deserve the same level of respect as anybody from from the US and so on. Yeah. Tato, anything to add? I, I can't add anything more than that, really. It's just echoing Evodia's sentiments that we are on par with all our global colleagues. The work that we do is really just as excellent and it, it shouldn't be frowned upon or people shouldn't be worried that doing research in Africa means that you're doing substandard work. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Uh, so lastly, where can people find your book? For international um, buyers, we're available through Amazon. Um, for South African listeners, to, um, their book is available online as well through a platform called publisher.co.za. Brilliant. We'll make sure that all of the links uh, as well as the link to your website 
uh, Path to Science are on the episode notes. So thank you both very much for joining me. It's wonderful to talk to you both. It's, it's a really great book. Very, very excited to have you on. Thank you, Kirsty, really for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsty. Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast and to our roundtable segment. This is a very special edition of this segment because today I have a partner in crime. I have a co-host. It's great to be joined by Anne Chisa, a PhD candidate at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Agricultural Science. Anne is also the host of the Root of the Science podcast and has been a huge support to me in getting started in science podcasting. Anne, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, Christy. It is a great pleasure to be here, especially like you said that um, I was there when you were planning all of this and just to see it come to life and to be here is a great honor and it's a privilege. And um, just a quick uh, introduction about myself. Like you said, I host the Root of the Science podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to interview Africans and STEM across the globe, giving them the opportunity to talk about their research um, or projects and also just to get to know the human element of it. So this this is really, really exciting and it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a bit about your PhD project? Oh, yeah, sure. So my PhD, in short, is, like you said, it's, 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 an, it's an agriculture science major. We are looking at ways that we look at human excreta, which is your urine, your poo, and um, using innovative sanitation technologies to develop fertilizers. So these fertilizers then can be used to grow um, trees or crops. So I've just started... It's still a bit hazy, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey, <laughs> but it's pretty exciting. And do you want to introduce the rest of the group? Okay, so we are back with Dr. Zoe Nsego from Mississippi State University. Welcome, Zoe. And we also joined back the Mtata Boffin herself, Kolisa Sinyanya, a PhD student in the Department of Oceanography at UCT. Welcome, Kolisa. All right. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Kolisa Sinyanya. And uh, my work tries to understand with the changing world, uh, the changing climate, the changing uh, planet, which is getting warmer. We're trying to understand the ocean's role. Um, and so I'm interested in using nitrogen to understand this. So I use nitrogen isotopes to look at the rates of carbon export, how much carbon the ocean is taking up and how that happens with the biological processes that are happening. So my PhD uh, predominantly looks at the chemistry of the ocean. Of course, with, um, with oceanography, you will have a lot of physics because you can't study the ocean without understanding the ocean physics. So there's a lot of physics, a lot of mathematics. We do a lot of coding. I'm currently completing the PhD. These are my last months. I thought I'd submit in July, but when I look at everything now, uh, with me having to publish my two papers before I complete the PhD, which I'm, I'm busy with now, I don't know if I'll make July. 
and July is my birth month. And so I was like, okay, this will be a gift to myself. Um, but we'll see what happens. Um, those are the plans to complete the PhD this year and take over the world after that. Yes, please. <laughs> Thank you. So last but not least, we're also joined by Hiral Naik, a PhD student studying herpetology in the School of Animal, Plant and Environmental Sciences at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. So welcome, Hiral. Uh, do you want to tell us about your project? Thank you so much for the lovely welcome. Great to be on a panel with such amazing ladies. I've only just begun the PhD. So um, my PhD will focus on the behavioral ecology of venomous snakes in relation to snake bite. Um, so for those of you that don't know, um, snake bite in 2017 was declared a neglected tropical disease because it affects thousands of people globally. So my goal with the PhD is to understand what causes venomous snakes to bite in the first place. Um, there is a huge gap in our knowledge of understanding the ecology um, and behavior of venomous snakes, their activity patterns, et cetera, et cetera. And it would be really great to get an insight on what these snakes are doing. Oh, wow. And I am also uh, the Africa program manager for Save the Snakes, a nonprofit organization based in, in the USA. Um, and we've just launched a new project in South Africa, which fo focuses on the education of learners, community members, and healthcare workers to try and mitigate human snake conflict um, and ultimately snake bite. Fantastic. I love that. As a, as a reptile lover, I love seeing positive snake psychom. So I really appreciate the work you're doing. That's really interesting. I'm not as much as I'm a wildlife, I'm... <laughs> Just not snakes. I don't hate them. I don't want them to be killed. I just don't want to touch them. <laughs> Hiral, is there anything, do you do any outreach or things like that with people who don't like snakes? And do you have a technique for getting people to be less afraid of them? I mean, in my experience, I use Twitter a lot for SciComm, um, just sharing stories of what I'm actually doing. Um, and I think it's it's something that takes time, but there's a lot of psychological understanding that needed that goes behind the sphere of snakes and part of our work here and working with the communities is going to be exactly that um, i'm currently based at a snake park and we often get visitors who who say you know they're very scared of snakes um, but they come in have a look it's more about understanding that these snakes are not going to attack you in any way uh, if you leave the snake alone you will be perfectly fine so Zoe could still be converted. Yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, wow. Just hearing your introduction, all three of you, we can tell how diverse it is in terms of um, your, your field. So it, it's, it's, it's so great that we have this diversity. But before you all had these careers or you all went into this research, it's always quite interesting to know um, how it all happened and how you got into this field of ecology as a whole. So I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the influences or were there any particular role models who helped you get into these type of careers? Um, we can start with uh, Zoe, since we started with you in the beginning. Dr. Zoe. <laughs> um, my interest in wildlife started when I was in primary school. 
I used to go to um, the Natal Museum in Peter Marisburg um, as part of an um, environmental club after school. And one time we went, we were doing extinctions and we were standing in front of a display of a dodo. Um, the education officer told us about extinction and she's like, oh, they, it means the animal is no more. I was just like, what do you mean it's no more? Like it's finished. There'll never be another one. What do you mean? Like, you know, and she explained. And I was just like, <laughs> wait, we, we kill things so that they're gone and they're no more. And I was just like, no. I said like, even then I was like, I'm going to make sure that never happens. Obviously being a child, thinking I'm going to save the world. My interest then grew from that. So I went to high school knowing that I wanted to get into wildlife, but I still knew nobody in the field at all. And I used to watch like Net Geo um, documentaries. See, when I went to varsity, I still hadn't met um, anyone in the field I wanted to get into. So when I registered for undergrad, I registered for geology and zoology as our majors. And geology was such a bore, my gosh. It was just, I was so bored. So in second year, I was like, yeah, no, let's not do this. So then I carried on with zoology and entomology, but I still didn't know exactly how to put it into like, what does work look like? Because there was just no role models. My idea of how I'll get into the field was to be a game ranger. So every time people ask me, what do I want to do when I grow up? I was going to be a game ranger because that's where I saw black people in wildlife, in conservation. They were rangers, you know? I started like doing a bit more research and there used to be a book that used to be published for like school going kids or high school where you could do like a quiz that sort of shows what kind of um, person you are. So what kind of career? So I went and did one of those things and it had a whole list. It literally put me, yes, you are definitely a zoologist kind of person, but these are all the careers you could do. And I was like, wait, there's something called an ecologist. We did a a little um, survey when I was in Kruger looking at the the perceptions of people that they have about the parks. And one of the questions was asking people, what jobs do they know that they could do inside the park? Cleaning, hotel staff, restaurant staff. And I was like, we're, we're still not doing mm. the job that we need to be doing. I, was, I got invited to come talk to the um, girls that had come to Kruger. And I was wearing the uniform of a ranger. And I was like, what do you guys think I am? And they were like, oh, a ranger. And I was like, no, I'm a scientist. And they were just like, wait, what? It, that's the work that we need to do letting those behind us know of these positions and how how you get into it because my journey into this career has been very start and stop and deviate and feel like you're going backwards so there's no clear oh you want to be a lawyer you go to this law school and you do this and you do articles and you do this and who would hire you because that's been the biggest question everyone asks me where are you gonna work (laughs) where (laughs) Yeah. No, what a story. And I think you mentioned so many parts, important parts about the visibility and role models um, and the perception of what specific careers um, one can actually be. You are role models to somebody and it's and you should you should own that because there's not a lot of people who are in that field. So now we're going to take it to um, Alisa. How did you get into your field of oceanography role model Zoe, okay okay <laughs> <laughs> so um for me so uh, as a child I don't remember a time when I did not want to be a scientist I don't 
And I had parents who um, promoted that, who, who felt like you can be whatever you want to be. And also growing up, I would have um, these many moments where it was just me, my dad and my little brothers and would just sit there and watch um, science shows and there's this one science show that we really, well, I really loved. I don't know about them. <laughs> um, and it, it was about research. Um, it was called Inquiring Mind. So um, we would sit and watch these shows, including Nat Geo. When I looked at the science world, I was like, um, nobody looks like me. You know, there's no black woman. I really see women at all. So maybe I should be one of the first. Of course, I didn't know that there were already black women in science because they were not showcased to us. So when I, I um, went ahead with my studies, the main thing that was in my head was to become a scientist mm -hmm. in the future. And so I completed high school and I went to varsity and enrolled for biological sciences, uh, which I absolutely hated at first. I was majoring in botany and zoology. So I was a double major at the uh, Walter Sula University in my hometown, Mtata, hence Mtata Boffin. So I was born in Mtata. Towards the end of the degree, I started falling in love with it because we had a lot of economics um, merged with the biology, with the botany, with the zoology, how you can apply it in the field, how you can um, apply it in biotechnology, for example. And I was fascinated by biotechnology, uh, which dealt with the, the minute um, science, things we could not see with the naked eye, but we could propagate things using these things we can't see with the naked eye. And I was like, well, okay, maybe I should go into this stream. And so I enrolled for my honors and um, did a project on, on bacteria. I remember my supervisor used to always say, you read a lot, hey, Colisa. <laughs> and so she, um, she would always say, you are a researcher. When I'm doing my work, she'd be like, you are the type of person who does not let something go until you, you find the answers. And of course, I listened to her and she was my first supervisor. She was a woman. She was black. She had a PhD. She was head of department. Um, I completed the honors degree and even before I completed the honors degree, I was headhunted by the, um, the research office in our university. So I started working for the NRF as an intern and then realized a couple of months into it that mm, 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 this is not for me. I need something more challenging. So I applied to the University of Cape Town for, uh, for a master's and the botany one um, had funding and it was also working on a, um, a part of what I was working on in my honors, which is uh, soil bacteria. But in this case, it was rhizobia, which um, form a symbiosis with fane uh, boss legumes, which are endemic or only found in, um, in Southern Africa. 
these masters introduced me to genomics where I would analyze the DNA of uh, microbes, these rhizobia. And I was fascinated by that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what? We can understand and see DNA of stuff we can't see with the naked eye? Oh my gosh, I need to do this in the ocean. So I went ahead and looked for um, calls that involved the ocean, microbes, and DNA. And I found uh, this ad and she immediately answered and she was like, I think I would like to work with you. And now I'm working with that lady. Her name is Dr. Sarah Fawcett. She's a Harvard and Princeton graduate who um, is from South Africa. And so I could say my role models were my dad. Uh, my dad was my role model. I think he was a nerd. So my dad passed away in 2017 um, um, and I was sitting in my office getting ready to go do my first PhD um, lab work. And I got a, a text that my dad had died. I felt like it was all aligned somehow. You know, my mom is, my, is also my role model because she's the type of person um, who doesn't stop until she gets what she wants or what needs to happen. And yes. I have inherited that from her. Um, and these two women that I spoke of, um, Sarah Fawcett and Dr. Ndoni uh, from Walter Street University, they, they showed me what women are about, what women can do, and that I can do that too and, and go even beyond. What a story. I like what you said about they show you what women are about. Fantastic. Okay, so Harold, uh, how, was, how was your genesis into this field of ecology, the field of STEM? Um, so mine's an interesting story. I actually, I was born in Zimbabwe and um, grew up there for a bit. And that's pretty much where my love for, I guess, wildlife and nature really began. You know, my parents always allowed me to really explore the outdoors and I was fascinated by the outdoors. You know, in my uh, spare time, I'd love to watch ants just, you know, walking the trail. And to this day, my family still makes fun of me. Um, and when they think about ants, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what you love doing as a kid. <laughs> um and, you know, we used to visit national parks and things quite a lot. Yeah, and that's where my interest um, with wildlife also really began, um, watching zebras and giraffes. I also used to watch a lot of National Geographic uh, Discovery. And, you know, being a kid, you watch a lot of cartoons, but the two cartoons that really had an impact on me were The Magical School Bus and Captain Planet, all kind of focused on exploring the outdoors and science. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do something like that one day. You know, I, I left Zim because of the political uh, issues. I lived in India for about two years. Also, again, spent a lot of time outdoors and then moved to South Africa in 2003. Again, you know, South Africa is filled with such natural beauty and wildlife pretty much everywhere. At the time, I don't think pursuing a career in wildlife was really an option for me. I also come from a family where, you know, you're supposed to get a well-paying job. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I thought about climatology. It still had to do with the natural world. 
And so at university and undergrad, I actually majored in ecology and geography. But it was the, the field work where I became fascinated by actually being able to work um, as an ecologist. And so, you know, when it came time to choose between geography and ecology, ecology won. And then I think the biggest uh, change in my life came when I decided to pursue uh, a master's um, in herpetology. My master's focused on the evolution of diet um, in the snake family. And, I, I, you know, my family wasn't necessarily happy with that. And they, you know, again said, okay, where are you going to go with this career? Growing up, you know, I didn't really have role models. Um, I was lucky in my, at my university that we, we, we had a lot of badass women scientists, I'd say, um, working in, in savannah ecology, fire ecology, soil ecology, but nothing that, you know, required directly working with wildlife um, and specifically with reptiles. You know, herpetology is a very, very male-dominated world. So it was great to finally be able to then stand my ground and tell my family, no, this is what, something I really want to pursue. And I think that's where I finally found my niche. And it all paid off because I got a distinction for my master's. And I think that became a big proving point to my family. And they finally understood my passion for snakes. After that, um, you know, it's not very common to have jobs in herpetology, especially not in in South Africa. Also, I was still Zimbabwean at the time. So it was really quite challenging to find a job. Along the way, I actually came across Save the Snakes. And I started working with them as a volunteer, as a communications coordinator. And yeah, it's kind of led me to a point now where I'm actually leading my own project um, as the Africa program manager and also starting my PhD. Thank you for sharing your story here. That leads me to my next question. Recent research has highlighted that the majority of papers published in ecology come from and promote the global north and that there's a need for support and, you know, there's a need for support uh, to promote people in the global south in order to decolonize this field of ecology. So I want to ask each of you then, has working or being part, um, being from the global south affected your research and your career development? Um, for me, I don't, I don't think it has, it has affected me any negatively, not yet at least. Um, I think having the background that I have, because I work for Sandparks, we are the ones mandated to uh, manage species. Not a lot of people can say they work for an organization where you are in charge of a country's um, wildlife and wild spaces, you know? So I think that actually gives me like, I actually know what I'm talking about. Usually researchers who are not from the global South, they come in with the science mind of, oh, science works this way. The science process needs this and this, but like, I've been on the ground and I can tell you from a research proposal that that's not going to work. But what I do think is hindering the research in the global South is if we could have more funds, just like people in the global North, because it's not that people in the global South don't have the ideas for research. They just don't have the funds for it. Mm. So like research is being done, but it's probably not being published because it costs so much money. It costs people's, 
like three months worth of salary to publish in nature or whatever, you know? So you end up having research, your research go to either a free or very local publishing company, which means your research is not getting out there. So someone in the global North is having this idea, but you've had it already. A way in which the global North can support the global South in that regard is collaborate. You have the funds, the people, they have the actual, like the, the local knowledge of the, of the work. So bring your funds, collaborate with an actual scientist because people will say, oh yeah, we do collaborate, but they mean just like field guides and field assistants. No, collaborate with scientists in the country you're working in. Mm, definitely. Kolisa, do you want to um, add to that? Um, I like Zoe's take on that. For me, in terms of being limited uh, because I'm from the global south, I would say I have actually had the opposite of that. Okay. And I would attach that to the fact that I'm at the University of Cape Town. Mm-hmm. I think that plays a huge role in terms of being received well by the world. What I have experienced um, is that researchers from other parts of the world will want to hear our opinion, um, want to know how we do the science, the side, would want to collaborate. In terms of publishing, I would say that on top of not having the funds to, to do the, first of all, the work, researchers from the global south have another negative aspect of not being cited. And so I think that's a, a very big um, glitch in the system. But in terms of me personally, as a researcher uh, being hindered or suppressed by uh, coming from the global south no I'm not yet yet because (laughs) I'm still a student we need to remember that I'm still a student um, and things might and probably will change when I'm a professional standalone researcher that's also very interesting from to hear from both of you um, because I would say from a herpetology perspective, um, I think I have in many ways been hindered. Um, herpetology is a very niche area of study, especially in South Africa. And, you know, mm. it takes actually reaching out to people to get anywhere. So I, during in my second year of my master's, I attended an international herpetology conference where I got to see uh, what international scientists were doing and how much at a, you know, master's level, people were accomplishing. And I started to realize that, you know, in many ways, the global South is limited in that collaborative manner. You know, we we don't know who to reach out to. There are many uh, herpetologists in South Africa that work with international scientists, but again, it's very white male dominated. Mm. So it's going to take, I think, a big shift in actually trying to um, work in the favor of female herpetologists, being able to uh, work in the academic space, being able to publish, being able to review or be on the editorial board. Um, there's a female herpetologist in uh, America, and she showed that globally, female herpetologists are not uh, included on many papers at all. 
there, there are tons of women actually working um, with herbs ar- around the world, and yet we we don't have that opportunity to actually publish and collaborate and in a way that actually you know promotes our career. I like the idea of a global herpetology network. That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> um, thanks so much for all your insights. That's all been really, really um, interesting. Does anybody have any last thoughts that they'd like to add? Uh, anything that you wish the world knew about science and research in Southern Africa before we wrap up? With what I just I mentioned earlier about collaborating with scientists, if you're not from that country, collaborate with people in that country region because it will improve your study full stop, but also now you are going to expose the scientists and the people who work in that field in that country to working internationally, which broadens their research and their networks. But also if there's something we've learned from this pandemic is you can't always get to where you wanna be. So if people are collaborating with people in the countries where they can't get to right now, your co-authors and collaborators could still be um, collecting the data and actually doing the work, but it's not working in some projects now because the locals are only field assistants who don't actually know the full details of the project. So they might collect the data, but it, because you are not there and they don't have a full understanding of the project, they're not doing it properly because they just don't know what the whole thing is. So collaborate fully because sometimes you can't get to a study site, but if we have local collaborators, the work can still continue. I also have um, a few words and mine have a lot to do with representation and diversity in my field, ocean science. And we have very little of that. It's transforming, yes, but at a snail pace kids or grown-ups not seeing that many black people or women of any race for that matter in ocean science does not mean that we can't have more. We really need to, to diversify. We need to have more women and black people and people of color. We, we need those. It's something I work towards. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I, I talk about it a lot. I practice it in terms of inviting people, um, trying to sell science, especially ocean science. We don't want ocean science to stay um, white male dominated. No, it needs to change. I mean, I'd love to add something about um, snakes. So from my personal perspective, you know, Africa is known for uh, large mammals, um, your big megafauna, but really we have such a diversity of reptiles and amphibians here. And, you know, it's, it's really just a great opportunity to be able to work with snakes. Um, and I feel privileged working with them. Anne, do you have anything you want to say before we wrap up? You've been a fantastic co-host. Uh, no, I just wanted to say thank you so much to just hear the different perspectives, some of them similar, but some of them also very vastly different. It was very eye-opening. And I think it's important to have such conversations, such diverse conversations, and even more so with women. I think it just, it always just gives me goosebumps. Like when I, when I chat to like, to like women who are doing these things and yeah, so it's, 
it, it's it's a pleasure for me just to be here. It's it's a it's a great pleasure. So thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, yes, the goosebumps. That's how I always explain it. Like I could be reading about a woman I've never heard of who has done this. I'm just I get like these goosebumps as if I know her person. I'm just like, look at you go. <laughs> <laughs> just now, Zoe was telling the story of her wearing the uniform and the kids being surprised that I mean had tears coming that was powerful for me well you are all fantastic role models in this and I so enjoy following all your science communication and it's been a real privilege to hear your stories and thank you so much for sharing your insights um and thank you so much Anne for your fantastic co-hosting um yeah yeah thank thank you guys for having us this was really thank you so much for having us Thanks so much for listening to this special Southern African episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. And a very special thanks to Anne Chiza for joining me as co-host. Make sure you go and subscribe to the Root of the Science podcast. Her in-depth conversations with African scholars in STEM is really not to be missed. Links to that, as well as links to everything we've talked about today, including where you can purchase your copy of Holding the Knife's Edge, will be in the episode notes on the website, theweepodcast.org. And remember to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore we underscore podcast for extra content, including some great pictures of all the women you've heard from today. Next episode, we'll be talking imposter phenomenon with Jessica Cusick, Emma Bush and Laura Kojima. It was a great discussion, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, stay safe. Bye for now.